Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast documents the oral history of contemporary art, film, and architecture from around the world. This August, a field expedition takes us to New York, New England, and the Mid-Atlantic. While we're away, we're sharing a set of episodes drawn from the archive we've been building since 2011. Today, we take you back to the month of April in the year 2012. That's when we set out on a road trip from Austin, Texas. We're aiming to find out how remote, wide-open spaces of the American West inform and inspire art and design, curating and filmmaking. The further west we go, the more we're surrounded by pump jacks. These mechanical devices extract every last bit of crude oil from wells that dot the landscape as far as the eye can see. We bear witness to alternative energy, too. Miles and miles of majestic wind turbines generating electricity for the region. Lubbock, Texas birthplace of musician-songwriter Buddy Holly, is our first stop. In a warehouse at the edge of town, we meet architecture professor Chris Taylor. He introduces us to students from Texas Tech University who took his course in land arts of the American West. The course involves a 6,000-mile road trip that culminates each time in an exhibition such as the one on view during our visit. Today, I'm in Lubbock, Texas with Chris Taylor, who teaches a course at Texas Tech University. There's one like it in New Mexico, but this is the tech version. It runs in the fall semester, and it's a full load of credits. And so basically, the easiest way to think about it is it's a semester abroad in our own backyard. All of our courses happen as we travel, and we're camping and living out of the backs of uh, vans. Uh, and so it, it allows the mobility for us to visit the sites that we do and to treat the landscape as a studio and work in the landscape. So you told me uh, that your per field session, it's 6,000 miles you're traveling. Roughly, yeah. And they're camping out the entire way. Absolutely. So the total is about two months of field time, and all that is camping and being on the ground. One of the key points uh, of the program is to be immersed in the landscape, and so that happens by really being in it and of it. And, uh, you describe it as an experiential program that is at the intersection of geomorphology and human construction. What do you hope that the students find at that intersection? Uh, uh, lots of things. But when it, so for me, that intersection is interesting because that's really uh, what we call landscape, the intersection of, of the natural world, uh, the, the world that's evolved over the millennia, the, the shape of the earth uh, is geomorphology, and, and then what people have done uh, on it through our evolution. And so how we've evolved uh, and the landscape has shaped our evolution and then we have uh, subsequently shaped um, the evolution of, of the landscape. And so there's 
a tremendous amount to, to learn from uh, on the human side, on the science side, on the, the complexity of the, of the landscape. Uh, and for me, that's, it's a very fertile intersection. And all the sounds we hear behind us are actually part of an exhibition that is at the end of each program and it documents the projects or work that the students did while they were on the road. It's not good enough just to go traveling and go see these works. That a big part of it is that um, wanting the students to process the things that they're learning and thinking about through their own work. Uh, and so the conversation changes when it's not just words, but it's, it's actions, it's, it's objects, it's, uh, there, there's effects, literal effects to it. Uh, and so that's, the, I like to think of the exhibition as both the carrot and the stick of the program. Students from Texas Tech are showing projects that they created while they were on a huge field trip. It's like the ideal class for some people, but others would find it daunting or boring or ter you know, terribly confining to be with, how many of you were there? Twelve. Twelve people. It's like reality television kind of thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you thought it would be, but it wasn't? Like Wasn't survivor. that exciting? Like the Survivor? So such an immersive experience requires a real commitment. I'm curious why you made that kind of commitment to a course. I think it's just the opportunity to take yourself way out of your element and go into something without any preconceived notions because it's, it's an experience that you've never had before. You've never really done something like that. So it's just the opportunity to try it out just to see what you come out with at the end. I think when you take yourself out of your element, you tend to take things in better, you know? Like, it's, it's like this new workout stuff where they're like, oh, you gotta trick your muscles all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, like, to, you know, change, change it up. Like, to get out of academia, to get out of the classroom, to do it in a fresh new way. How about you, Chris? Why do you do this every year? <laughs> <laughs> For me, the, the motivation is in the in seeing over the years, or blessed in years, the individual responses. And it, um, for me, as an educator, what's exciting about that is it's not one-dimensional. It's I can't predict for each person that it's they're going to get X out of this. Uh, but the agency and authority that comes back with each of them is to me the thing that's most impressive. And and then also the work within the program, as well as how they continue to feed off of that work for years to come afterwards. Your journey includes quite a range of sites, not only natural landforms, but also ancient and contemporary human settlements, industrial sites, and military installations, and iconic land art, like the spiral jetty, which I thought was really cool. You go all the way to Utah for that. I was prepared to just go see land art, professional land art, but one of the surprises that we found out on this trip was the, um, the way we used the way we use land for just to survive as a culture. There's an, a legacy to the industrial acts that we perform, and so uh, we, we visit very remote wilderness, um, the extreme wilderness, and then also areas where high civilization in terms of high manufacturing has, has left its mark. And think about what, you know, what are the impact, impacts of, of human action on the planet. And this comes back to that intersection of geomorphology and human construction, that our, our desire for uh, digital audio recorders and computers and, and whatnot require copper and require, you know, there's, uh, these things come out of the ground and, and where they come from and, and what stories they leave behind is something that we're wise to pay attention to. It was interesting being in Marfa just because, um, like, 
we we always see art as being something like oh that could be anywhere but Donald Judd's um, his I, I, like he wanted that particular environment he wanted it to interact with that environment and so like the barracks and how everything is set up he's creating not only these art pieces but he's trying to for the audience he's creating this entire like surrounding so one of the reasons that it's an important stop for land arts is the clear fusing between art and architecture and landscape. I mean, the reason to go to Marfa is to visit the Chinati Foundation and see the, the aluminum boxes and to, to realize that the aluminum is a key piece of that, but, and the room is a key piece of that, but if you didn't have all three components, you don't have the work. And the environment. Right. It changes every the, day. The light, the landscape, the color of that grass, and so that fusing is, is vital. And that's a big thing that we're doing at all of our sites, is looking at the interaction between our lived experience, the setting, the history, what's what's come on um, in that whole, whole picture. What site inspired what you consider the most important work you did in the program? I was really inspired by Wendover, Utah. And, I mean, it was the... The, the town where we went to the Center for Land Use Interpretation. That was very important to go and talk to those people and learn from what, they're, what experiments they're working on. And also, the town is, has this quirkiness that um, inspired us to go explore the underbelly. I think a place where we're, we were all really productive in, at the Mimbris River. Hmm. Um, and it was kind of the first place where we it was probably the most alienated from human contact, I think. Where was this? Um, it's in the Gila uh, wilderness in New Mexico. Um, and I don't know, I think that was our first break from man-made, and so we, a lot of us got in touch with what was there, which was not man-made, which was exciting, I think. For me especially, that's where I gathered a lot of materials and ideas. Um, and us being in a place that it felt relatively untouched, but at the same time, we were always aware that we changed it just by being there. Was there a moment, or could you remember this moment when you started thinking differently about how you, as architects and artists, would see your role in shaping the environment? The whole trip was like, it was, it was profound, and it was like completely, not enculturating, but disculturating, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Like, seeing how opportunistically they they design like there would be a nook in like you know in the cliff and they're like oh well we're gonna build right here we're gonna stack some rocks and look there's already you know here's a roof and there's walls just little things like that like don't fight with what's out there whenever there's you know stuff to, that you can work with to your advantage the, uh, the profound moment would be uh, coming back to what used to be familiar so it's coming back from um, an experience where everything was new and then seeing things differently. I spent a lot of time pacing back and forth when I first like got back home and went inside of my house. I'm like, I felt so constricted and it was awful. <laughs> For me, I guess it's, it's one thing to, to actually, like in architecture, you know the heat's out there, you have to keep it out of your building. It's a different thing to <laughs> go feel it and try and escape from it. Um, and, and actually understand that, that factor of what, what separates you from everything. Like, it's, it's different to have no escape. When you can't you're just, like, you're just in take it. a break in some place that's air conditioned. Yeah, it's like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be cold until the sun gets this high today. That's, that's a huge... So you might as well stay in your sleeping bag. That's not allowed. <laughs> <laughs>
drive on to Roswell, New Mexico, home of the Unidentified Flying Object, or UFO, museum, to spend the night in one of the ranch-style houses that accommodate participants in the Roswell Artists in Residence program. Artist and art collector Don Anderson established RARE in 1967. The program offers visual artists the chance to spend an entire year concentrating on their work. The voices you'll hear in this conversation are five of the current residents at the time of our visit. Sarah Bostwick, John Paul Viegas, Brian Klug, Corwin Levy, and Shobin McBride. I'm sitting outdoors in a gorgeous space in New Mexico at Roswell Artists in Residence Program. I'm surrounded by artists, and my question for them is, what is the difference of making art in Roswell, New Mexico, or in this space, than making it anywhere else you could be making art in the world? Sarah? I was just taken with the feeling that you don't have the same sort of strings attached or the same pressures. Literally, no one is watching what you do. I, I don't know, I just feel the freedom to experiment, finally. Because you, you have more time. Normally, it's just like you have to get something done because you have to work so much and make your art. So, like, you just have extra time to fool around and discover things. I don't think prior to coming here, I made anything that was vaguely earth tone. That's an interesting <laughs> thing that I found out about myself is that I'm capable of working with things that are brown and beige. I think uh, where I came from, which was Southern California, I kind of grew up using like a really unnatural palette, a lot of pastels and things. And then, I mean, I yeah, it's it it interesting because for me, it made me think about how I am like pretty directly affected by my immediate environment. And in New York, I think it was the first time that I had been working in a place that was uh, super dirty and full of grit and dust. I mean, literally. So my studio was full of this kind of black soot, and um, and my work was became sort of yeah, a lot of black and gray. And then coming to Roswell, yeah, I'm making all these things that are you know, that are made out of clay and dust. And I mean, there's still some of the similar things that I used in Los Angeles. I mean, I still work a lot with a lot of stuff that I get from thrift stores and things. But it's it's all kind of mixed together with things that are just sort of much more traditional and kind of romantic in a way that I never would have allowed myself to do in Los Angeles or New York. I actually feel like I've become part of this sort of weird romantic tradition of of the landscape, and <laughs> which is really funny if you see my work because it's not at all romantic in that way. It's, it's, it's funny the way that that stuff is kind of filtered in. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I guess as someone who is already using your tones, that's not... Yeah, so much a part of what's new for me. The thing that maybe struck me the most, actually, was the level of support in the community for, for the arts, and particularly for, for Clay. I wasn't expecting to, to find that. I was expecting more to be off on my own, um, and you certainly can be if you so choose. It's been refreshing, actually, in a, in a town of, what, 40,000 40, that there's two museums? I mean, that's pretty incredible. Not having a day job gives you tons more time to like hang out with your 
partner and watch movies yeah. and read books <laughs> and watch the bird feeders. And, uh, that, you know, yeah. it's the different kind of creative acoustics you, you get to feed on things that you wouldn't in your regular day-to-day life. Um, and also, like Sarah was saying, you have an opportunity to take risks in a way that you don't feel safe to in your day-to-day life as well. What would you say, Corwin? I guess two things. Uh, first is not so much the daytime landscape out here, but the nighttime landscape. I've been in areas with less light pollution, but I've never seen somewhere where you can just look from horizon to horizon and see so many stars. It's a little crazy. Yeah, the skies are mm. so big. Right? And uh, also, what you were talking about, Sarah, after about four or five months, it just hits you that this residency is different from any other residency. Like, you go to, you know, any number of residencies and you, you work, you do your thing. But then suddenly, after your show, after six months, you're like, wow, I can just do anything. And I still have six months to do it. It's so awesome. And it's, it's a pretty wonderful feeling. But it's also scary, too, because you have to face yourself. And I oh, yeah. Know. You do. Like, and you actually have to... Oh, go ahead. It's the horror, really. <laughs> right? You also have to really think Conrad about yeah. what, that, totally. what that means to have, to have a partner and... You have to really think very explicitly about like what amounts of time you designate for things mm-hmm. because it's it's not structured in that way. So being an artist can involve just you know spending twenty three hours a day <laughs> making art. The family time is huge, though. I have a right. one year old daughter. Having been here for the last six months with her has just been amazing. I can't picture any other kind of scenario where. I would have had this much time to devote to her and, and to my wife as well. But yeah, that's priceless and <laughs> irreplaceable, really. Making a commitment for a year, though, that's a significant demand on an individual in the 21st century to actually give yourself that much time to be able to afford it in a way in terms of your career. You have to keep up with the outside world even though you're in this wonderful desert bubble yeah that was an issue for us JP was wasn't sure if he wanted to come because he was at a point where he was supposed to be talking to everyone he was right in the middle of it you know yeah and I felt like I was getting more I mean New York is kind of a bit of a tough market to break and to get to a point where you sort of feel like oh you know you can go to an opening and and know people and not feel like an outsider like I feel like I was just getting to that point I had a different need. Like, I, I was working so much, I didn't have time right. to make enough work. And I needed to come here to make a body work so I could go back with something. Because I didn't have the work to show there, <laughs> you know? I just yeah. make bits and pieces. And, like, you had this body of work, you needed to get people in there to see. So And then we found out about the residency, and I was like, oh, I'm going to have, like, two months to do that, or... We'll just have to go and, and make a bunch of work here, which I'm glad we did, actually. We'll just have our, our stuff together. I mean, you make all the work, but you have time to do all the business side, too. Yeah. And, like, we came together as a group and, like, put together these packets. It's, like, all, like, a practice. I mean, we're going to apply to things together, but it's also just, like, getting into the practice of actually doing that. Whereas you never force yourself to do it because you're always under so much pressure from all this I know. And then, it's actually interesting to be at a residency where we're all artists. I only went to one other residency and it was mostly writers actually. And there was a lot more people because it was a shorter time. 
So I, I didn't go to grad school, so I feel like this is sort of my grad school, you know, like being with a really strong community and having a time and have the facilities. Well, and committing to a year also allows you to be more ambitious with what projects you can take on. That's a beautiful That's nice thing. And also part of it is just taking all your stuff with you. Yeah. Like to a month residency, you just take a project's worth of stuff. Right, right. And here you have your whole studio. Or a studio that's twice as big as you ever had. (laughs) (laughs) Or ever will. (laughs) What do you think are are the downsides of this residency? Moving out. (laughs) Yeah. Not getting paid anymore. Yeah, I know. I mean, there are some weird things that they're not so bad that it actually makes it a negative, but like there's intense weather and intense bugs that. Are not to the point that you can't handle it, but it's it was something new, you know. The, the weather though is also fascinating. Yeah. Right? yeah. The sky turning brown the from rain. a sandstorm. <laughs> the next morning, I spoke with Sarah Bostwick about how the residency had affected her creative practice. Sitting here with Sarah Boswick, who is a relief sculptor working out of New York City normally, who's shown her work in Brussels, San Francisco, Providence, Rhode Island, and Ridgefield, Connecticut, and finds herself here taking a year off real life to be an artisan resident far from the art scene that she's used to. And this past week, she opened a new exhibition at the Roswell Art Center. Sarah's work is referencing architecture. It's a minimalist sculptural form that's often cast and recently made of wood. Sarah, I'm wondering why architecture is a reference point for your work. Well, I'm interested in the language of objects and what the objects that we create tell us about ourselves and and how we communicate with each other through this visual language, and um, it has to do with my upbringing. My father's an architect. We always built things together. Why relief versus some other form? What What is exciting to you about the relief of an object instead of the object itself? Well, I, I like its dual connection with the historical tradition of carving and casting and these really formal materials. And then how I sort of see like a more high-tech thing where it actually changes throughout the day. Like, but it doesn't physically change, but when the light hits it in different ways, it's almost like the picture moves or, or it changes meaning depending on what, where the light is hitting it. So that just fascinates me that you can create this thing that's almost alive very slowly moving, but um, it's so low-tech, you know. So all the work um, that's in the exhibition now has to do with photography and sort of how we see the world through photography. So sort of the affectations of the lens, but we're so used to it that it almost feels like our own sight, you know. And so like what happens when you're viewing through that filter of of the photograph? And so a lot of the pieces capture light the way a photograph would capture light, but you don't actually see that in real life, or you don't notice it as much, I guess. 
what I'm looking for is, is work that you can look at over and over again because it's going to be different every time you see it because the sun's going to hit it differently. And those pictures up to now have been quite intimate, the scale, until the most recent work, which is growing. Yeah, well look at where we are, look at this yes, room. Yes, the size <laughs> of space you have to work in here versus New York yeah. is significantly different. Yeah, I was working out of my house before I left. Because of the light, I couldn't afford a space with the light that I wanted, whereas my house had amazing light, so I just, yeah, I definitely worked smaller. And I didn't have the tools to do it. I, I really want to come away with a much larger body of work, and um, I think it it's definitely going to be a stepping off point, you know, after leaving here. But hopefully. <laughs> A three-hour drive from El Paso, Texas, Marfa has become a destination for art tourism, home of the ghostly Marfa lights, unexplained lights sometimes seen along the horizon in the night sky. The tiny town sits in the high desert between the Davis Mountains and Big Bend National Park. Renowned minimalist artist Donald Judd came here in the 1970s to escape New York City's commercial art scene. With the help of the Dia Foundation, he acquired a former army base. Before Judd died in 1994, he transformed the 400-acre expanse into a faceted art experience. The Chinati Foundation is a contemporary art museum designed to connect art to the surrounding landscape. Year-round visitors can explore Judd's signature boxes and installations by Dan Flavin, Rebecca Horn, Ilya Kabakov, and more. We spend a few days to track down some of the artists, curators, designers, and producers, expanding on Judd's singular vision. Professional filmmakers Jennifer Lane and David Hollander moved to Marfa from Los Angeles. Cinemarfa, the festival they founded here, will celebrate its 10th year in 2020. We visit their home for a conversation about the genesis of the film festival and plans for the second annual event. This afternoon, I'm in Marfa, Texas with Jennifer Lane and David Hollander. Jennifer is a painter and filmmaker who produces films for professional artists with David, and their company is called Fourth Density. They lived in Los Angeles for a dozen years before they came to Marfa, and since 2006, they've been living here, and it seems to be the land of opportunity for Jennifer and David. They're among the <laughs> artists who have energized the art scene, and one way they did so is begin working mm -hmm. on Cinemarfa. Jennifer, why Marfa? After living in Los Angeles for over a decade, I'm a native Texan. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, we just wanted to change it up, do something different from the urban life that we were living, and we sort of happened upon Marfa. We were taking a road trip, and I had heard about it, of course, and we just sort of stopped in to explore and just got completely overcome. We loved it here and just 
spontaneously decided to move here, and we've been here ever since. We felt like it was time to go to some place that wasn't maybe quite as overdetermined. Don't get me wrong, I really love Los Angeles. I am from Los Angeles, and I identify strongly with Los Angeles and with the art scene there, because mm -hmm. I've always been really interested in West Coast art, and things like Wallace Berman and Bruce Connor. You know, moving here seemed to be sort of moving into a place where it was maybe a little less defined. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it's in, in the process of being defined. There certainly is not a, not a void of culture in Marfa by any means. It has some, I guess, uh, characteristics of a more urban environment. Um, but I think that's what makes it interesting to artists as well. So. So Cinemarfa takes place this May 16th through 20. That's just a couple of weeks from now. Yeah, this year, our second year is scale-wise, is really going to be similar to last year. You know, we're doing it on a shoestring budget. It's very organic in a way. It's not academic. It's something that just came together very naturally last year in terms of the programming and the people that we invited uh, to present. And this year is similar to that, really, in, in a great way. Is there a certain theme or character that you want to develop as the identity of Cinemarfa? While we employ themes, we, we do, we don't, we're not dogmatic about it. So last year's theme was, was engaging no-wave filmmaking, which I thought was a really exciting time in, uh, in the film world, and one that sort of refers to this moment as well. Because it was the sort of cinema of possibility. There was this time when, when anybody could pick up a non-professional film camera or video camera, you know, at Super 8, 16, and, uh, and go out and make a feature, breaking all the rules and dispensing with all the conventions of previous films. So that was sort of last year's. This year, it's loosely uh, thematized as documentary in extremis which is to say not necessarily extreme documentary, documentary at the end of the form. It seems to me that with the advent of reality television, that the sort of center of, of what was documentary has shifted. And there was this moment, you know, before reality when certain filmmakers employed the tropes and conventions of documentary for specific effects that were maybe outside of the project of documentary. The first film that we open with is called Punishment Park by Peter Watkins. And Peter Watkins was a, a filmmaker who made a series of quasi-documentaries or pseudo-documentaries wherein he would stage a certain kind of reality and then document it in a sort of verite fashion and use it to move audiences. In, in the case of, of Punishment Park, it's kind of a piece of agitprop about Vietnam era, Nixon era, United States, where our society is sharply divided between the sort of heads and the straights. And in this, basically, there is this fictitious act called the McCarran Act that says that all radicals are going to be rounded up and subject to this military tribunal and then sentenced to some crazy sentence and they're given the choice of like life in prison or punishment park and then punishment park is this weird capture the flag course that they have to run where they're given some lead and then chased by national guards riot police who then hunt them down and kill them 
And it's, yeah, it's really, you but know. it feels really relevant to us yeah. right now because you could substitute radical for terrorist. It actually was criticized, I think, by, by audiences because it, it almost has this quality of the sort of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds thing where it's like trying to... It's so real that you could believe it happened. But, but it also challenges this idea that like documentary is some sort of inviolate form that you can't go in and reorganize and rearrange. And so, uh, you know, in that sense, it's, it's documentary and extremist. And we're also showing a film um, called The Exiles, which is a film from 1961 directed by Kent McKenzie. And what it does is it uses a sort of, it employs a, a verite style to follow this narrative, which is really kind of a minimal narrative about uh, Native Americans living in the Bunker Hill district of Los Angeles. And, and the narrative is also based on reality. It's based on it interviews is. and the people are real people acting out sort of scenes from their life. So it is a, it's sort of a hybrid of documentary it's, and narrative. Yeah. But harmonies work really, really Yes, to harmony too. more than anything else, I think, is documentary and extremists. I mean, Gummo, you know, certainly is this amazing portrait of America as sort of an American Gothic thing. But then his newest film, Trash Humpers, is kind of amazing because, again, it, it sort of, it, it seems like a real different kind of film than any of his other films because it, it, uh, it's sort of, I guess, more lyrical in some way. It's more fantastic. And yet it really does you know, explore that idea of documentary in its sort of death throes. Do you have a picture in your mind of what you would like Cinemarfa to become? I'm aware of and I'm involved with a lot of film that has been basically lost in the archive, that languishes on a shelf somewhere and is not being seen. And my personal mission has been to take a lot of those films that are unknown this year, we're going to be showing a film called Eggshells, which is Toby Hooper's first film from 1968. And it is a film that I think will be out on DVD later in the year or early 2013. But previous to that, it has not been seen. So that idea of not just showing obscure things, but then facilitating their being seen by a wider audience is... We would just like to continue to bring amazing, hard-to-see, rarely-screened cinema to our community here for the people here and for people who want to come to Marfa and experience amazing cinema in this setting. You know, we want it to grow gradually. It doesn't have to be big and splashy. We like it to be a little bit underground like it is now. It's for specific audience of people who want to see artist-made cinema. We like the scale that it's at to some extent. It, it's the right scale for Marfa and for the work that we want to show. We just have a wish list of people and films that we want to program in the future. For 2013, how would contemporary artists get involved or come to your attention? We welcome submissions. You know, you can go to our website, www.cinemarfa.org, and there's a page uh, that will tell you, you know, where to send your work. Yeah, we welcome artists. Who artists are and gallerists as well. Yeah, gallerists, know, artists. And curators. Exactly. Uh, people who are working in film and video who have a history of showing their film and video work. We're definitely looking for work all the time.
it's a group effort on a community local level, but we also uh, want to bring in resources from the larger community as well, and we welcome participation. We have a really specific focus, and it, it comes out of our sort of practice as filmmakers, as producers for fine artists who are working in film, because what we realize is that there were just a lot of this work that we help make and really like uh, is just simply not available. It's like there's no way to see it. And, and a lot of that is the artists themselves just to have no interest in showing their work as single channel work. You know, either it has to be installed or it has to be in the right place to be seen. And we're just like, you know what, let's create a, a context in which we can get artists to screen their work as single channel work here in Marfa. And I think that we're well on the way to doing that. I think that that's another thing that's going to be happening more and more in the future is that we're going to be able to show contemporary. More contemporary art. Yeah. Definitely. But art that specifically fulfills that criteria of you can't see it anywhere else. You can only see it in the gallery or the museum. You know, I love the idea of challenging certain filmmakers who won't show their work to show it as single channel work. I think that that's good. I think it's good for the, the artists as well. And, and we realized that that kind of thing didn't exist anywhere else. You know, yeah, you can go to the Freeze Art Fair and look at, you know, whatever's on the booth. But, you know, in terms of going into a movie theater and that's dark and cool and sitting down and watching something from beginning to end in that context is something that I think is it's magical. It's really an incredible way to experience work. And, and so to that end, we have every intention of bringing more of that stuff to Marfa. You know, we choose to live like the people should live. I don't follow no rules on Sunday. I don't eat no pies on Monday. <laughs> I don't play no games on Tuesday. I don't cry myself to sleep on Wednesday. <laughs> it's all just... I don't know, one long game, I guess you could call it. One long, long game. Ballroom Marfa is a key site of cultural production in this remote art mecca. Arts pioneers Fairfax Dorn and Virginia Laberman founded the Contemporary Cultural Arts Space in 2003. Ballroom's gallery is a converted dance hall that dates to 1927. We sit down with Ballroom's creative team to learn more. I'm sitting inside Ballroom Marfa with the director, Fairfax Dorn, Melissa McDonald, project manager, and Nikki Itner, head of music and events, all three members of a creative team that shapes the programming for Ballroom Marfa. Fairfax moved to Marfa from New York City to launch this space and Ballroom's programming now encompasses visual arts exhibitions, music events and film screens as well as dance and theater productions. You seem to be generating a ton of creative energy here and I, I know from trying to reach you before I came here <laughs> how caught up you are in producing cultural events for Marfa and I would like to know from you, Fairfax, why Marfa? My background is as a painter. I studied, I was an artist, and then I also um, worked at the Whitney and Exit Art, 
And then um, after I decided to leave New York City in my early 20s, and I moved to Terra Lingua, um, and the co-founder, who's also my dear friend, uh, Virginia Leberman, moved there as well. And Terra Lingua is about two hours south of Marfa, Texas, um, near Big Bend National Park. So uh, we were sort of, you know, we had been to Marfa and always, you know, sort of admired what was happening in Marfa with um, Trinati and Dread Foundation. And it wasn't until we were actually like sort of living in the desert in Terra Lingua that we realized sort of like other things that were sort of coming, conjuring up in terms of like filling a void. Like that's what we, I think, do out in the desert. We'd like to fill space. Um, so to speak, and was starting to come up to Marfa after the Land and Foundation established themselves here and they were giving readings and so forth. And we would come up here to experience um, those programs. And I was just, we were both really struck by that experience, you know, of, of having this you know, cultural experience out in, you know, the royal landscape. And we thought, I don't know, there was room for more to exist in Marfa along the side of the Chinati and Judd Foundation and Land Foundation. And um, there was also the great the Marfa Book Company and Maya's Restaurant. All these things were sort of like just starting to sort of really grow. And um, we just saw the energy there and I think it was around 2002. Mm -hmm and thought, wouldn't it be great to have a space which incorporated the visual arts, you know, film and music and performance and having all those experiences out in this landscape. Because what, you know, the original inspiration was to sort of project films and so forth out in the canyons of, you know, near Big Bend National Park and to, you know, sort of bring people to that place um, to nature and I don't know, it's just all about having these um, experiences and having the sort of intimate um, relationship with the arts in this way and nature as well. And so Marfa being a destination instead of just a little town. Right, you know, there's definitely the vibrancy <laughs> of, of the Dread Foundation and the Marfa Lights and the National Park and everything else that exists here. I mean, that has helped us create this, you know, Platform. And who is your audience for what you do here? There's the, a lot of young people who come here right out of college. Um, we have just the international scene of museum um, visitors. Um, it's very, I mean, there's a whole wide range of art and designer, architects. Mm -hmm. I mean, Melissa, been, she gets called all the time from different schools, <laughs> right? Yeah, we've had a lot of groups from architecture schools come in. So we just had an architecture group from Juarez um, in, in Mexico come up here and wanted to hear about the drive-in, wanted to hear about ballroom and did all the tours. So it's, it's pretty even international in, in um, the students that are moving through here. Um, but I think we also see a lot of, you know, for our events, music events and um, visual arts program, we see visitors from Alpine, Marathon, um, El Presidio, El Paso. Um, we can, LA. Yeah. And yeah. And for Austin. big ones, driving and flying from all over. Yeah, right. all over. A lot of them, they made the pilgrimage. I mean, yeah. um, you know, Europe, you know, Germany, France, London, I mean, all over the place. So tell me how you shaped the programming here. I, you know... 
also worked with Virginia Letterman, the co-founder um, of Ballroom Marfa, on ideas that we're interested in, and we either I either will curate shows or we will invite curators to present projects. And we like to keep our programming very diverse. So there'll be group exhibitions based on a concept or um, solo exhibitions. Um, and we're primarily interested in commissioning new, new works. The idea of the ballroom is about um, the idea of convergence of, of people. And so bringing that out and sort of like this um, in the desert was important to us. Our programming is constant throughout the year. Um, 10 to 12 major music programs. Um, we have an interesting film program called The Reading, which is involved with the um, Academy of Art and Sciences. Fairfax Dorn introduces us to an atmospheric performance presented on New Year's Eve 2010 in Marfa's Crowley Theater, Brian LeBarton's The Wind. In 2019, we reach out to curator Laura Copland to find out what happened next. Ballroom Marfa continues commissioning site-specific artworks and installations. Responding to the environmental, social, and political ecology of the landscape that extends to the border of Mexico. One recent example is Harun Mirza's massive stone circle in the grasslands east of town. This is Ballroom's most ambitious public commission since Elm Green and Drag Set's Prada Marfa was completed in 2005. The stone circle will remain in the landscape for the next several years. Leaving the high desert, we drive northeast through the Texas Hill Country and endless fields of blue bonnets. In East Austin, we meet designer-architect Jack Sanders in his studio. Sanders talks about how the legendary architect Sam Mockby's rural studio influenced the evolution of his own life's work. Today, I'm in Austin, Texas with artist Jack Sanders. He's from Cleburne, Texas, and studied at Auburn University and the University of Texas. Jack is the founder of Design Build Adventure, a company offering services including design, construction, and project management, but also he includes in his list of services public art, adventure planning, storytelling, and dreaming. I just I love that description on your site. And I noticed that you studied with Sam Mockby and Everything you do from what I've learned about you so far has seems to be profoundly influenced by the time you spent with him and the rural studio. You've even co-produced a documentary film about him, so I'd really love to know more about that. Okay. Well, I, I'm just one of those people that wasn't real clear on what I was going to do and you know, ended up at Auburn University just without a lot of direction. I think, an, you know, a guidance counselor who I'd told I wanted to study art suggested architecture. And I ended up in an architecture program and was asking a lot of questions about whether I should be there and contemplating maybe film school and ended up 
without knowing that I had landed at, at Auburn University just at a really amazing time, you know, not many years after Samuel Mockby had started the Rural Studios. And to get to leave campus and go to the, you know, the, the smallest, the small town in Alabama, one of the poorest counties in Alabama, and, and get to work with, with Sambo Mockby and with the community, with Hale County, Alabama and the residents there, just immediately it was like I don't care what degree is going to come of the become of this this is what this is what I want to be doing for sure and I was hooked and I went back and did my thesis work out there so I was I spent a good portion of my architectural education at Auburn in Hale County Alabama and for the most part I think design build adventure and all the work that we've been doing since then has been trying to maintain the the spirit and the excitement and the enthusiasm that that we all had at that time it was such a it was kind of a running joke at our in our program that it was all downhill from there you know even sambo would joke with us about that cuz he knew how much fun we were having it just was a joy to to work maintaining that sense of wonder that he had created for us as 18 19 20 year olds it's kind of been a challenge for me personally and i think the adventure part of design build adventure that's 100 percent what it's related to my particular story was you know we leave the main campus and as a second year architecture student leave the the bars and the football games and the you know greek life and move to a town that really had the type of poverty that probably most of us didn't know existed. And we moved directly into that community and started to interact with people and, and use the energy that we had to to design and build. On the weekends, the building would slow down and you would just start to just try to find things to do. Was it whether it was the you know, to get invited to church with somebody or to go to, a, you know, somebody's house for dinner or to go to a local club or whatever you could do to kind of become a part of the, you know, the community. And after being there for several months, on, I stayed in for a weekend and on a Sunday I got invited to, I met a guy at, a, at the Piggly Wiggly, the local grocery store, and, and he said, would you like to go to a baseball game? And I, you know, I went to a baseball game with this guy with two other classmates of mine. You know, we're only second year architecture students and we get taken down a dirt road that ends up being like maybe two miles from where we where we were working and living as a as a university program. Just back through the trees and down this dirt road was a sand lot, all African American baseball club that had been operating on this piece of land for seventy five years, eighty years, and really high level uh, competitively of baseball with neighboring towns bringing teams. 400 people would be there in this town of 200 people. I went in um, and basically knew that that I was going to come back to this ball field and do my thesis project. And we didn't tell anybody about it either. The backstop there had been this chicken wire and, you know, cedar logs cut down right there. Some of the posts were probably trees coming out of the ground. You know, people kind of built their own benches and seats where they sat every week. It was really, you know, grown it was a really interesting experience because it was designed, but designed over 75 years. And we were really timid about, you know, pulling some of that apart, you know, to build something new. And when it finally came down to it, they were like, oh, that old thing? Let's go. I tore it down in four hours. And, and then there we were. We had a project to rebuild that over the next couple of months. And that project ended up in the Whitney Biennial. Again, I was just there at such a great time. Sambo had been 
had been sick, had had leukemia, it was in recovery, and the paintings that were coming out of him and the projects that he was willing to take on, he'd won the MacArthur Grant, you know, all this great, th- all this just energy was out there, you know, and every weekend it was another film crew or a magazine or Oprah or, we knew what we were doing was being appreciated and, and it was exciting and, and at one point the curator from the Whitney had called and wanted to talk to Sambo and the big question was, you know, we didn't know if it was it Sambo's artwork, was it the Royal Studio, what was it? And they ended up saying, we want to show three projects that, you know, represent the Royal Studio's work. And one of them was the Newburn Baseball Club's backstop. So we all got to go to the biennial and, you know, quite a moment in our, in our, in our young art careers, for Definitely. sure. <laughs> On your website, you mentioned, I know you're collaborative and you had that experience with Sam that you have a rule about working with clients that we have to get to know each other is what you write. And what's behind that philosophy? Well, I mean, I think it's rooted in the rural studio philosophy for sure. But I mean, for, for me, really, it's, it's, that, it's that we've got, I mean, that's the real joy in it for me. And I, I think is getting to know, you know, getting to know the client and their kind of their aspiration of what it is that they're imagining that's going to, you know, that they need to do in their life. And, and, and I think sometimes we, we hope and want that it's just going to come out and that we can design it real quickly and just nail it on the first try. But I think what we learn is that it just tends to take a lot longer than that and comes out much more through the development of the relationship between not just the client and and the designer, but also the client, the designer, and the site that they're, they're going to be working on. Or, I mean, I think the most direct story from Rural Studio that comes to mind was was that while my teammates and I were at the Newburn Baseball Club, we were for the first several weeks of the project, we were cranking out designs, paper, 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 model, 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 over and over. And just not really getting anywhere, not feeling like it was getting anywhere. And we would try to hold meetings with the team and ask questions, and they'd give us pretty general answers about what would be this and what would be what would be good for that. And at, at the end of the day, I don't think the real breakthrough came until the day that I was sitting in the bleachers and 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 one of the teams, one of the other opposing teams, was short a player, and they called out to me to come play right field. And then and I remember having a moment out in the field. And looking and seeing my partner Marnie was braiding hair in the bleachers, and my friend James had made a friend who he was drinking beer with, and I'm out playing right field. That suddenly there was a breakthrough in our in in our confidence of as designers as okay, we can do this. They trust us to do this, and they trust us to find what the right answer is. And it it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen. In with one one sketch. I mean, you can look back at those sketches and might find some of the roots and the the important stuff in there. But it's not the solution comes out with a little bit of time and 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 getting to know each other. Really, it's like slow architecture. Absolutely. Design build adventure was deeply involved in the creation of El Cosmico, which is this very interesting lodging opportunity in Marfa, Texas, which involves vintage trailers, yurts, teepees, and an outdoor bathhouse. At some point during my graduate school education, I had the opportunity to meet Liz, and and she had told us about the work she was doing in Marfa with this El Cosmico project. 
And I think I had just started to talk about design, build, adventure. Kind of as a tryout, I was one of the producers of the, the first party out there, which was called the See It Before It's There. And we all basically, the same weekend that there's still the El Cosmico Festival, we all went out there and you know set up a little camp and had a party and 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 for the most part that was that began the relationship with me and and Liz and Bunkhouse and El Cosmico and it was a good opportunity to exercise a lot of the rural studio kind of beliefs out there and one of those is probably I mean I think at Rural Studio we'd call it design build design build design build which is even though we think we're going to design and then build about halfway through build, we realized there's some more designing to do. And I think at El Cosmico particularly, you know, it, it actually the pace and the way that things go out there and the situation that the project was getting started in, that really worked really well. We weren't going to go out there and just pave it and build a hotel. It actually had to be much more organic than that to be an alternative lodging concept. While we were building El Cosmico, I would end up taking a lot of interns or young people with me um, and we would pack up in the van and the trailer and the welder and and lay all the tools out and pack all our bags you know make a real trip a pilgrimage out to Marfa and work for two weeks and and every day at noon we'd go to the food shark we'd be dirty bandanas dust and sweat and and everybody say what what in the hell are y'all doing and would tell people you know that we're here building and a lot of people would say, I want to come work with y'all. You know, this sounds fun. And I think that really led to, you know, again, the bigger discussion of the things that were going to happen at El Cosmico and that happened more organically. There was always a concept of events, workshops, but th this workshop grew very organically out of that. It's really a, a learning vacation. Camp Design Build Adventure is anybody that wants to sign up no matter what background we go and stay at El Cosmico and over four or five days work really closely with an organization called the Dare Sioux Collective and so they came to me and said we've got this project called Eastside Play that we want to do which is taking this little piece of land and turning it into a little pocket park for this group of kids that was playing football on the street and the land was kind of donated for that purpose and so we knew we needed to build a shade structure and so last year we built, with 18 participants, we designed and built a shade structure in this park and amenities, some benches and some landscaping and a tether ball. This truly is a design-build adventure where we are given the opportunity to design this next stage of this park. So we might determine that it's another shade structure. We could determine that it's a basketball court, that it's more furniture, that it's a fence. The discussion of what's next is a, com a conversation that the participants in the camp will have really intensely with the group of people that the Dare Sioux members and, and people that maintain the park and the kids that play at the park and then we'll design, come up with some real quick intervention that we think is the right idea and then execute it. And that's all in five days? All in five days, so it's pretty quick. You know, I have a pretty good idea of what's available in terms of materials around there. So I'm able to take them one day and show them like, hey, this is kind of the materials. And that's a big conversation again about what, what materials are available in this area and why. You know, there, there, there's not a lot of wood 
at that area. And I think that's probably because there's not a lot of trees growing out there. I was going to say, there's you know? no shade either. Yeah. I vote for another shade structure. That's right, right. You know, all the hardware stores sell this oil stem pipe that is recycled from the oil drilling industry, which is just the near, you know, Midland, Odessa. They bring that pipe down to, to West Texas, and that pipe is used in everything from corrals to sheds to, you know, fencing and, and in the ranching industry. And so that material is really abundant. Adobe, we'll go and visit adobe structures and talk about adobe. We're probably not going to stack adobe while we're there, but we can talk about it and be inside it. So the, the whole workshop is basic construction techniques, but we also acknowledge at the very beginning that we're not here to save the world. It's just a nice, you know, we're here to work, but we want to learn a little bit about construction techniques. We'll learn a little bit about construction basics, layout. You know, I teach everybody how to use the transit and, and really try to read the site and interpret the site. So it's just a kind of a real basic introduction to design, build, and the adventure aspect is just all the great things that there are in Marfa to do. You know, we have this wonderful access to Chinati, the a great bookstore, you know, the ballroom Marfa, you know, and not only that, but just tremendous, tremendous artists and talent in, you know, that we can that give us studio tours or come and participate even in Cause there's a train through the grass And the grass that grows calm As the train goes past But the grass, it still hums along This is the Fresh Art Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. Today we've taken you on a road trip in the American Southwest. Natural landscapes and remote communities inform and inspire the curators, artists, filmmakers, and architects we meet along the way. This is where local histories and ecologies motivate contemporary creativity from land art to experimental cinema, from social architecture to contemplative art spaces, making this region a destination for fresh art. Visit our website to learn more and hear other voices from the world of contemporary art. Please take a few minutes to review Fresh Art on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at FreshArtINTL. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art, and listeners like you make this oral history project possible on freshartinternational.com, you'll find the opportunity to support our stories. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk. <laughs>